Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. One of the very first efforts that Pheasants Forever undertook after its formation back in 1982 was to work with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources on a campaign to delay the mowing of roadsides until after August 1st. It's that magical date, August 1st, that pheasant broods are born, that pheasant broods who are born throughout June are generally speaking uh, able to fly. And that means they can escape mowers that are mowing those roadsides. How important are roadsides to upland bird production? Well, it's a good question. One study in the 1960s demonstrated that 40% of the fall's bird population was created in roadsides. And that was the 1960s. It demonstrates the potential of those corridors as habitat for upland birds. As most initiatives in our organization, our work to protect roadside corridors for habitat has evolved, evolved tremendously and become increasingly more complex. Today, uh, I've jumped into a series of meetings being um, held at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's headquarters offices um, that involved our seed team, and include Michael Rudderer, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's National Rights of Way and Energy Coordinator. Michael's going to join me on this podcast, uh, On the Wing podcast, for a conversation about the new and innovative things we're working on to create habitat on, along right-of-ways, roadsides, and all sorts of other Oh, well, let's say margins, creating habitat for pheasants and quail in the margins. But first, let's meet Michael Redderer. Michael, good to see you again. You've been you've been part of this team, the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever team. It's got to be close to a decade, right? Uh, yeah, 2008 is when I first came on. Okay, so it's a little over a decade. Uh, yeah, with a little you know hiatus there, you know, a few years in, and then uh, a second a second trip. It, which is um, an interesting component because we we talked on um, oh a couple episodes back on the Pollinator Week episode, Drew Larson and um, Anna Swarzak. Both employees that were with the organization took a short hiatus to try something different and came back to the organization. It, it, I, I think, you know, in another episode we talked about just how uh, how long a tenure folks have with the organization. It, it, it sort of speaks to how sticky people are, even if they leave the desire to come back and and. Um, kind of see how the fruits of the mission hit the ground is, is a bit unique with, uh, with this organization. I'll have you tell us about that hiatus and what brought you back, but let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Um, kind of 
you know, what you grew up, the, your connection to the uplands, um, bird hunting, and, and habitat. Walk us through the Michael Redderer story. That's a pretty long story, but <laughs> I'll, I'll try to shorten it up a little bit. So, um, you know, actually, I, I'm from um, Springfield, Ohio, pretty much smack dab in the middle of the state. Um, so, uh, and then um, I grew up, my, my hunting introduction and experience was literally uh one weekend a year because i'm a city boy you know i was born in town my my dad came from a a rural community so he grew up hunting you know pheasants and quail carrying his gun to school on the school bus you know the whole stories we hear from our, our our dads and grandfathers um during a rich period of time there um in the uh you know 50s um late forties and fifties in Ohio when there were a lot of population of a lot of these birds we discussed, but we'd go, uh, I'd go visit, uh, for Thanksgiving, um, down to the family get together and we'd be in Southern Ohio. So we'd go down a day or two early and we'd go grouse hunting. Hmm. Um, so that was my, my introduction to hunting. That's really what I grew up doing was just the one weekend every month, kind of going out and doing a little bit of, uh, of hunting on grouse, which, you know, in those days, you know, I was the bird dog, you mm-hmm. know, for the adults kind of thing. And which that led to something I'm sure we'll discuss here in a second. But, um, yeah, so that's really how I grew up hunting. I didn't get into a lot of large scale hunting until really, um, after high school and then really when I got into college. Huh. Um, so, um, I mean, I just, I grew up in the city, um, I was very, you know, into sports. I did a lot of that, you know, loved the outdoors, you know, we'd go visit Southern Ohio, um, where we had, um, relatives and they had farms in the, in the woods, but I just didn't have a lot of access to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my dad was an accountant, he was in hotels, we traveled a lot, sports travel, just didn't have a lot of time for it, but I still had a passion and I, I joke around and if it wasn't for Marty Stauffer's wild America, <laughs> you know, which I watched, re, you know, every time it was on and all the episodes, I really enjoyed it. Um, but it was, uh, I went, uh, graduated high school. Um, and I, I actually went into the Navy. Hmm. Um, I was going to be a Navy diver, but got injured in, in basic training. And so kind of was unable to do that. And sitting there figuring out, okay, what am I going to do for the rest of my life hmm. kind of stuff. And it was like, well, I always like wildlife. I do that. So when I got out, I, I basically enrolled into a small college in Southern Ohio, Hawking College. Hmm. Um, a lot of our Division of Wildlife, I think at the time it was probably over 60 or 70% of the entire you know workforce came from Hawking College. It was a well-known technical school, mm-hmm. two-year associate's degree. And and that's what I went for. Um, that's where I started, you know, and, and when I went to hawking, you know, learning about it and I was able to, you know, do a lot more of that. But, you know, it was it was college before I harvested my first whitetail. Um, my roommates took me turkey hunting for the first time and then just really, you know, lit, you know, the fire, you know, mm-hmm. the interest was there, but then the opportunity. And then I've just really, really took it from there and it's gone to probably a few <laughs> levels, you know, above, you know, and whatnot. So, huh. but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into the wildlife field. Uh, how'd you get injured in basic training? If you don't mind my asking. Um, it was a knee injury. Okay. Um, and actually it was a sports injury from high school that was kind of undetected. Huh. Um, it was an ACL injury that just didn't get, didn't get fixed and observed at the right time. And I was in, injured, meaning I couldn't do some of the activities that we were doing. It just got bothering and bothering and bothering. And 
And, and the way it worked out was is, you know, um, when you're in, it's not special forces, but when you sign up for these extended services, you have a spot, you know, and when I, when I, you know, I, I didn't know that if I had surgery and came out, if that spot would be still available for me, gotcha. you know, so I had the op, I could stay in and do that and not sure, or, or basically it was, I was, you know, medically discharged and, and had, every, you know, the work done, you know, from, you know, when I got sure, home and stuff. Sure. So just with the uncertainty, it was, it was, it was a big risk at a time I wasn't, wasn't willing to take and didn't know where I was going to be. Cause, right Cause like I said, I was going to, going to be a Navy diver. So, huh. um, Hawking college, yep. uh, for a time there. And I don't know if it's still, we, we had a chapter. There. Yeah. Is that chapter still? As alive far as I know, it is. Okay. Um, it's still down there. We do, uh, workshops occasionally with them. They're very active. It's a technical school. So they learn hands-on. So uh -huh. they actually have landowners that, that, that sign up their property. The students get to go out and, and practice wildlife management techniques. Um, We've done a lot of uh, the trainings and workshops. They're, they're, they're working on a contractor training to try to help, you know, promote and get contractors in the state to do the habitat work that's needed. Um, they're in Southern. They're kind of focused a lot on forestry, you know, mastification, thinning, stuff like that to okay. help with some of the invasive species we have in the state. But, um, yeah, it's very hands-on. I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I learned a lot of the stuff, just not in a book, but by physically going out and doing it. Sure. Um, and then I had a professor, Don Altoff, that uh, did his uh, master's and, and, and even his Ph.D. studies a lot here in or over in Nebraska with uh, – the greater prairie chickens. So we were actually able to put an upland game bird class together during spring break in hmm. theory. And we traveled and came out West and saw it, you know, that again, kind of really keyed me up because we got to go see who we went to Nebraska and Wyoming um, and some of the other edges of a couple more of the States there and, and just met with their, their game in parks or their fishing game and looked at, you know, bird populations, sure. got to see sage grouse on their leks. Um, got to see the prairie chickens where he did his research, you know, on those grounds too. Um, some lessers in Southern Kansas, that kind of stuff. So it kind of really gave us a full gamut. It was a great, you know, kind of whirlwind upland bird tour mm -hmm. um, and just kind of really set me down the path that I am, that you know, where, where I'm at. Yes. And then what, what, what was your first, um, your job, first job out of college? Uh, first job out of college was actually, it's with our division of wildlife in Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. And it was just working in a, in a district office, answering phone calls. A lot of it was like wildlife damage or issues or, mm. Hey, I've got a raccoon here. There's a duck in my, you know, fire in my, uh, uh, chimney, you know, really kind of crazy things, but that's what it was. <laughs> but my first real job was working at one of our wildlife areas as a, as a technician. Okay. Um, and that's where I got introduced to prescribed fire. Um, we'd had native grasses mm -hmm. and we burned some of the wooded areas in Southern Ohio and, and got, and I was actually able to use the techniques I learned in college and gained a lot of, of the experience that I, I use today from the, the seeding, mm -hmm. you know, herbicides, you know, just all the different techniques and, you know, that you've learned from different people because different people do things a lot of different ways sure. so you just kind of you know garner that and put it together what worked what yep. didn't um you know and that was in 96 you know so I've been doing this a, a long time and mm. so there's a, a lot of mistakes were made but I think that that is invaluable to, uh, to me moving forward is you know a lot of that was learned you know on the ground on the fly and just seeing what worked and what didn't and then now applying that knowledge and mm -hmm. stuff to to the recommendations and, and what we do today so did you take the leap then from ohio division of wildlife to then as a farm bill biologist oh no or was there no there's, oh, there's there, more stops yeah, along the yeah, way yeah, well like, tell us about the stops yeah, like i said it's a huge tour so um 
so like I said, when my dad was, uh, was in hotels and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, I ended up, I have two degrees, fish and wildlife management. Um, and then I also have a hotel restaurant hmm. degree because that's, you're the only person in the world with that combo. <laughs> well, right. So I, I went to work with my dad for hotels. Um, I was a general manager, um, huh. holiday inns is mainly what we did. I was in Atlanta, Georgia, Boca Raton, Florida. We had quite a few there around the, around the Ohio. Huh. So I'd go work with them, set up things, especially new acquisitions, getting things over to the management model that sure. they were using. And I did that for a few years. So, you know, suit and tie to work every day, dealing with that. I just wanted to get back to my wildlife roots. And you wanted to carry a drip torch again. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to get back to it. So I was trying to sit there and think, you know, unique skill set, right? Mm-hmm. Hotel, restaurant management, wildlife degree. Where's the optimal place to go? So I went to a hunting ranch in South Texas. Huh. Was, my, was my was my biggest trip, was my, was my next job. Sure. Um, and with that, I took my crew of my GSPs, my German short hair. <laughs> okay. Um, how so many did you have at that time? I had, Oh my goodness. At that time I did have four. Okay. No, I had five GSPs when oh. I went to South Texas. So I got my first GSP in 96 when I worked for the division at that, you know, at the district mm-hmm. office, I was actually driving home and a trucker saw me with dog boxes in and I had a CB and I started talking to him and he had, he had some GSPs, right? He was trying to get rid of a puppy. He was asking if I knew anybody. I ended up with my first one from that point, you know, and then from the, a trucker who saw you, a with trucker that saw me drove, drove, this is a bizarre yeah. story. I like drove it. by and it was on my way home and I picked up a puppy and, and took her with me. And how random is that? It is. And she, you know, that lit the bug and I got, I got hooked. Right. And uh-huh. then I had one, then I had two. Um, I did field trialing for, for a few years. So there. why did you have dog boxes in your truck? I had you, dogs. Oh yeah. Dogs, I had just, just not pet pets. hunting dogs. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. I had, uh, I had, okay. a, I had, a, I had a, yeah. I had a couple labs at the time. Okay. And then I got the the pointer, you know, and then got the pointer bug. And okay. now I have my slew of GSPs. I've, I've been up to 13 is my largest wow. amount at one time. When you were in South Texas? Well, I went to South, yeah. So I was in South Texas uh, with my GSPs. So we were, you know, on the ranch. So uh-huh. we would hunt upland game, big game, everything like that. Um, and then I, I did wasn't really utilizing my restaurant or hotel skills. Until I went to um, Harpole's Heartland Lodge there in Il- Pike County, Illinois. Hmm. And I took over their wing shooting side and did a lot of the habitat management on the grounds for, for not only that, but also for our, our, the deer and turkey side as well. And and from there, I just, you know, the guiding, the sheer, you know, I started with the guiding, but they have the lodges. So, you know, I'd help Gary and Wanda out with the lodges and stuff. And and we were there for a few years. Um, I, I met my wife in Texas. She went with me to Illinois. We got married in, you know, there in Illinois. And then my next big jump is I went to Colorado. Uh, I'm assuming South Texas, you were guiding for quail. Well, yes, as far as upland birds, quail. And then I did turkey, deer, neil guy, you know, the exotics as well. And then in Illinois, you're guiding? Illinois, it was uh, pheasants and quail. Okay. And then again, turkey. Okay. And then whitetail and then waterfowl. If, if we so sorry it. to cut you off. No, then no. you went. Then I went to uh, Colorado, Colorado and went to a, a large ranch, 20,000 acres in the high plains of Colorado around Baca County, which is Campo, Colorado, which is in that south, extreme southeast corner, Elkhart, Kansas. Oklahoma was the southern border. Um, so in that Cimarron National yep. Grasslands area. Yep. So there it kind of expanded because we were hunting uh, blue or scale quail. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we were also hunting bobs around the, the, the in, in the, the tamarack thickets along the river. Uh, we got pheasants um, just across right. the line in the there into areas. Kansas in the in the in the basically the the pivots mm-hmm. and, and some of those dry corners. And then the big CRP acreage there, and then also um, lesser prairie chickens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, they were still legal at, at that, that point. Time. They were still yep. um, guided several people on their what would be considered their gold medal bird there mm-hmm. before before um, the hunting got shut down. Mm-hmm. So, so that was a pretty full gamut. But at there, I was running the entire operation, the lodge, this and that. So that's kind of it was kind of like where I, you know I was going with 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 my degrees, sure. my experience. It kind of fit for them because they didn't have to hire multiple people. One uh-huh. person could kind of looked out. So kind of created my own niche. Um, and that was in and then 2008, um, about when, you know, the whole kind of market kind of sure. issue, we, we were a destination, you know, hunting place. And, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't like the, 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 the place that, you know, um, folks saved up to go on their once in a lifetime deer hunt or their annual, this is, it was entertainment, right? right. I mean, we, it was a lot of companies, income. a lot of corporations. And, and when that was kind of in the whim, that's when I started looking to see what was out there. Um, my wife was expecting to. So I was like, well, I'll look and see if there's anything in Ohio so that we could get back. You know, my parents were there to help, family, things like that. And I ran into the um, the posting uh, on the Texas A&M job board because, hmm. you know, and everybody in wildlife kind of knows that that's the place for a lot of the wildlife postings and mm-hmm. jobs. And there was a posting for the Farm Bill Biologist with Pheasants Forever. In Ohio. In Ohio. No kidding. Yep. And uh, Jim Inglis from our government affairs team, he was the one that uh, I called and talked to him about it, you know, and yeah. he lived in the county above me or where I would be going back to. And that's where the job was in my home county. So had some conversations, applied, um, and that brought me back to Ohio in 2008. And that's when I first came to the organization. Okay. As a farm bill biologist. As a farm bill biologist. Working in a USDA service center. Mm-hmm. Had five so, counties. And it just... For folks that are coming into this episode, first-time listener, what's a farm bill biologist do? A farm bill biologist um, works through the USDA offices on farm bill programs. So a lot of it is with uh, farmers, ranchers, or landowners that have um, land in agriculture that, for whatever reason, they're looking to do something different. It could be marginal acreage. Um, it could be um, a lot of times it would be just that nobody's interested in farming in the family. They want to keep it, the farm and, and mm-hmm. doing things like that. So, you know, legacy type stuff. So it would be farm bill acres. And, and the majority of it was was writing plans and providing technical assistance through the Natural Resource Conservation Service on seed, seed mixes, seeding designs, planting to establish the crp and or other you know farm bill right equip farm bill right you pick your wildlife yeah wildlife uh, program um so i and then so yeah started that in 2008 okay 2008 and you did that for how many years i left pheasants forever in 2012 okay so four years four years um, and here's I, the hiatus yes here's here's the here's the hiatus um i left uh after our summer meeting that we had at Eagle Bluff, okay, as, as a huh. as a team meeting, the 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 second one, I guess it would be at at Eagle Bluff. Okay, um, I left that one. I left uh, shortly thereafter and went to work for one of our national sponsors, or they were a, a contributor to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. It was a contractor. They did you know a lot of large conservation planting across the country. So, okay. you know, at the time for me when I was a farm bill biologist and where Pheasants Forever was at that time, there mm-hmm. just wasn't 
a lot of advancement opportunity. Sure. Yeah. So something came in my lap. It, at the time, it was the best choice at, at that time for my situation, the family, and where I was. And I don't regret it because the experience I got being one, I was the planner first. Mm-hmm. Then I became the contractor implementing the plans mm-hmm. that not, you know some of them I had sure. written, but most of them were like other farm bill biologists or other people had written. Mm-hmm. Um in, in across different states, you know, from Idaho um, through um, Iowa and Illinois, and then even all the way down into the Carolinas, learning how different people wrote those plans. And then mm-hmm. as a contractor, I had to decipher those plans on what they wanted me to do. And if there were sideboards or if there were hiccups, what were the options right. and what could I do? So um, CRP Acres went down, yep. right? 2000. Nationally, they yeah, went. Nationally. They, they peaked in 07, 08. Yep. And then and steady, and then changed. they kind of fell off there. In two, yep. And I guess that would have been 2000. And it was going to be in 2014. So that two years. 2014 so, farm bills when. So it, they started falling before them yep. but the 14. But the forecast bill. was they were going to be lower. Mm-hmm. So uh, we ended up separating ways mm-hmm. because A, the work just wasn't going to be mm-hmm. there, right, for the, the large you and the, that we had. the other business. Yep, yep, yep with, with the contractor business. And it just happened to be at that same time. That we started growing. And well, the positions reopened up. My old position opened up with PF, so okay. I called and talked to, um, at that time, it's, it's Kent Adams. So Kent had sure. replaced Jim. Jim had gone to government affairs. Kent Adams had come on as the each region uh, director. And so, um, yeah, so I called that, went through a process, and ended up coming back in 2014. And, yes, it, when I came back – that between 12 and 14, given the way um, the Farm Bill Biologist program had expanded, mm-hmm. Pheasants Forever, you know, ha- had kind of expanded there with just the sheer number. And then also the, the contracts or the agreements that we were having with um, the funding partners kind of allowed then for, more you know, r- growth. There were different yeah. levels. And then there were also more positions being because – the, while the model got started as this, there were other needs in other areas. So that's where coordinating biologists kind of were getting started. And mm. so there were other options, which worked out for us. So came back in 14 for that, uh, worked in 14 and 15. And then in 2016, we started working on a coordinating wildlife biologist position because we were partnering um, at that time in Ohio, the Ohio Pollinator Habitat Initiative. It's kind of a grassroots pollinator program was getting started. Mm-hmm. Um and then we had a, one of our transportation partners at the time needed services. So, and that's how my coordinating biologist position came about in 2017. Mm. And so I was, that started me into work with Department of Transportation, mm-hmm. right? This is what kind of started that, that rights away work. Um, at that time, I mean, you mentioned already like Drew Larson. So Drew Larson was in charge of our pollinator program, mm-hmm. you know, kind of at that time too. So me and him worked together a lot because we were both pollinator focused. Um, and then we also started both attending a lot of like the pollinator as habitat working group meetings, um, Monarch joint venture meetings. So we started uh, kind of running in the circles where there were other folks working on this, the rights of way potential was, mm-hmm. was being raised. We were getting interest from folks. Um, and then, of course, what really drove or what really kind of pushed 
um, us in the pollinator world with the right-of-ways was when the potential listing of the monarch butterfly kind mm-hmm. of came out. That's mm-hmm. a, a real concern to land managers and little large acres and what are they All the do? way up to Department of Transportation. Yes. Yeah, right? everywhere. And so there was things going on. So we were heavily involved with the Pollinators Habitat Working Group, um, their national CCA, which is conservation um, – <laughs> Sorry, I can't help you out. With no, this no, acronym. no. It's one of those. Uh, <laughs> RBI is runs batted in. I don't know what CCA is. <laughs> uh, I'll have to come back to it. Anyhow, uh. And Mike, while you're thinking about that acronym, uh, let me take this moment to recognize uh, sponsors of the podcast. Uh, first of all, South Dakota Tourism and South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. Thanks for being a sponsor of On the Wing Podcast. Create your pheasant hunting story in a state loaded with tradition. Find public land maps and planning tools for a South Dakota adventure of your own at huntthegreatest.com. And word from the official ammunition of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Federal Ammunition. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we change the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control FlexWad technology and a mix of copper-plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. So the CCAA is basically just an agreement with different entities in the Fish and Wildlife Service that they do voluntary habitat ahead of time and then and then that way, if through construction or, or things they have potential take, they've mitigated it because they put out a lot of acres ahead mm, of time. Okay. So um, not, not, not like a mediation bank, but you, you can see it, it kind of has the same, a same concept. Um, so the, the biggest thing was is as we started working through that is that's where this whole kind of concept started arising is those entities were asking for help mm-hmm. on – what do we do? How do we do this? Establishing, quote-unquote, pollinator They're Not only establishing pollinator habitat, but managing the existing grounds for, you know, this, you know, because uh, we, we do both, right? We create new habitats, okay. but then they also maintain and manage, you know. Improving what's lots already Lots of acres, there. improving what's out there. And then there's a whole other concept of this, which is monitoring. Mm. You know, once we get it on the ground, we need to monitor it. How does that happen? So a lot of the entities were working together uh, to create monitoring plans. Uh, Monarch Joint Venture has it has a couple different ones. They have a roadside um, integrated monarch monitoring plan that kind of goes out. A lot of different states had different plans. So there was a lot of stuff kind of working at that time. And like I said, that was between 2017 and roughly 2019. It kind of got really started. And then 2019, it really picked up. Um, and then that's when we actually got some dedicated funding to specifically work on mm. those particular issues, uh, in Ohio. Uh, we also assisted in Pennsylvania. Um, and then we started also working with some of the electric, um, and gas transmission companies uh, on projects, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of this starts as a small project. And then, 
they do the project. It's oh okay, so that was that worked out great. Mm-hmm. Where else can we do it, mm-hmm. right? And then helping them figure out what works. Um, but all, and then a lot of it, and then so that went to there, and then and then essentially there was a lot of ask from industry. They need help. This is what they need. X, Y, and Z. Well, this is habitat. Mm-hmm. So who, if not PF, then who is better suited as a habitat organization to start providing these services? a little outside of where we've currently worked Mm -hmm. but it's still it's native habitat it's the same process that we've done it's the same um uh, the same kind of outcomes and things but they were just put in little different boxes and and put in little different areas Mm -hmm. so that's where we really brought it up and and that's how i'm in my position now was because of the need to help work with entities to get this habitat on the landscape um and, and also then help identify why it's important, where we need it, you know, so the outreach education side. So I still work with Drew and Anna and their team and and, and, and over at, you know, our education and outreach because it goes hand in hand. Sure. Um, so we still work together quite a bit. And so that's why, that's where, how I got to where I am sitting today talking to you about this topic. <laughs> so when you walk into a, let's say, a, a right-of-ways business, Ameren, right, in, in Illinois, an energy company, and you got the Pheasants Forever or the Quail Forever logo on your polo. Um, when you sit down, do they know who we are at this stage of the game and, and our reputation for for working on Habitat? And, or is it still an introduction to these new companies? It's for- a little bit of both. Okay. So the good news was is yes. So we as an organization with our Farm Bill Biologists, with our breadth of you know, personnel across the country, there have been those small projects, right? Even using our, utilizing our chapters, whether it be in pollinator events, being a youth event, uh, them being contractors, doing the work on some of these projects with these utility companies, high visibility areas, whether it's like next to a road where it crosses Mm -hmm. or even at a campus, right? A headquarters campus. Um, so the name is there and we've done all the work and, 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 and so our reputation as a habitat organization, you know, like I said, they started reaching out there in 2017 and 2018. We started doing some projects. We started providing, you know, information. And, and when we went to these meetings, the Pollinator Habitat Working Group, these large meetings, NAPSI in Washington, D.C., which is North American Pollinator Protection Campaign uh, uh, annual conference and meetings is all these entities is like, I'm working with Pheasants Forever. I'm working with Quail Forever. We're partnering with Pheasants Forever. You know, it it almost got embarrassing at the time of just the sheer amount of people mm. in that world that were already doing small projects with this. And a lot of it is because they're isolated projects on mm. small scale. I don't even think we as a company knew all that we were doing, you know, as a conglomer- as, as a conglomeration. Sure. But, but so, you know, I'm doing this. Oh, I've also done this and I've done this and I've done this. And then so that really spearheaded to the point where people were sitting in the room and, and hearing this, mm-hmm. right? So then they started calling us and mm-hmm. saying, hey, so-and-so is doing something. What can we do? Mm-hmm. You know, because they're, they have to do something, right? They need to do something. We got to move forward. They don't know where to start. But the other point of this is, our our, 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 a lot of our state and federal partners that, you know, we're delivering mission for them every day when these companies are asking for help, they're saying they reference us, they say reference us or, Hey, here's who you need to talk to, you know, mm-hmm. or here, go to them, you know, cause a lot of the programs that are set there doesn't fit mm-hmm. in all these situations. Some do, you know, if these are privately owned right aways, then you know, our equip programs, we do have farm bill programs, but 
large these large tracts of land or that you know next to roads and things they don't fit into our federal programs but it's like we want to do something who do we go and a lot of our partners kind of directed them to us and that started that started showing the need and, mm-hmm. and putting this in place where it's it's standardized guidance right you know uh, a flow of communication so that we do know what we're doing mm-hmm. and, and how then we could package two or three projects together to do more and then it's like well these are great we're doing projects but we want to do a program, mm-hmm. meaning we want this to be so essentially this is a sustainable habitat program that we're working on now with these companies, meaning we the projects are great. Let's do the projects and keep right. doing the projects. But we want to get to where is it's no longer a project. It's a standard operating procedure. It's the way you do business every day. If you're doing new construction, these are the habitats you're installing. Anytime you do a restoration or a construction project or you expand Instead of putting back what was there before, you're putting back the the new stuff, better mm. stuff, um, and so that's kind of how this is ha- is starting to evolve, and now it's even going to the next level. So you know we're providing seed mixes to mm-hmm. these companies and recommendations on what to do um, on these areas. So where it yes they're they know us and they're interested the name, but there's still that. How can P, you know, how can Pheasants Forever, mm-hmm. Quail Forever, you know, help us and do this and stuff? So they're even though they've heard the name, mm-hmm. these are still new entities, right? That we may be working with, and and sometimes it is just a small project to gain that trust and understanding. But the breath has now helped us that that initial project, right, isn't always a small project, right? It's right. a fairly significant project, right? So here's an analogy. You can tell me if it's close or, or okay. not, yep. uh, but I'm going to take a swing at it anyways. Sure. And it's a baseball analogy, so so the swing is uh, appropriate. Right. Um, all right. So when I worked in baseball, you know, you have, let's say, let's say it's a, a major league team. You have 162 games, right? And 81 of those are home games, which means during the summer, you got 81 games when the team's on the road and you got open venue. And so you'd always have a person on a team – uh, in the front office that was sort of new business development role. And that person would try to book concerts, uh, festivals, beer fest, um, even, you know, a career fair, things like that. And I always, and, and some folks are like, well, our business is baseball. Why are we trying to, to book a concert? Yep. Well, some obvious, people going to a concert still buy hot dogs and soda. There's some revenue to begin there, but also people going to a concert, potentially a new audience that goes to a baseball park, looks at the stadiums like, this might be a fun place to go watch a, you know, a Saturday evening, uh, a game. So it opens your venue up to potential new audience. I equate what you do in a similar way as, you know, in some respects, there's habitat to create for pheasants and quail, and I'll, we're definitely yep. going to talk about that. But in other respects, it is working with new partners to introduce them that may open the door to, uh, yeah, we do a roadside or a campus habitat planting of, of prairie flowers. And, oh, that opens the door to, you know, maybe they do have tens of thousands of acres in the heart of quail country that... Now we have a rapport with that allows us to do bigger projects that um, influence bird numbers. Is that analogy close to accurate to how you would see your role? Yeah, I mean, it very, it really is because essentially we're taking our experience that was our bread and butter that we've done for years, establishing habitat, 
CRP acres, farm mill acres, you know, four pheasants and quail, you know, and then even over the years, we've learned that that habitat is beneficial to many other things Mm -hmm. other than just what we were targeting. Right. Even the core 40 acres of prime quail habitat is the whole web of life. Yeah. So whether that's wildlife, whether that's water quality, Mm -hmm. and then the environment, you know, other environmental benefits. So really, so what we, we, we have that expertise establishing this. And then now the other companies and, and the ballpark is now the entire U.S. Mm-hmm. United States essentially, yep. right? Yep. So, so think about it as the point of literally, um, you know, the potential is sitting there, and we're just giving them the direction and the tools to do it. And those small projects are exactly that. It's that it's that beer fest, right? It's mm-hmm. that little festival. It's like, hey, by doing, you know, this is how it's done. This is what you do, and they're like. Well, that's easy. That's really nice. We'd like to do that here. And just Mm -hmm. like you said, it starts as a small project, then it goes to projects, Mm -hmm. and then hopefully we develop into that huge, large program. But it's not just with one person. It's many many entities, right? So this entity sees they're doing it right, and then they present at at a conference or they present their results, and then the other entity sees it in the next one, you know, and that's how it just snowballs into these larger, bigger partnerships and programs and we are literally talking about millions hmm. of acres across this country you know across the whole right away and energy you know gamut millions put that in perspective for millions me. of acres so just to talk so transportation and railways there's o- there's over 2.5 million miles of roads and railways and what's beside every road and railway a ditch a ditch a buffer they call it, it's a roadside, mm-hmm. a right-of-way, a varying widths, mm-hmm. right? It could be five foot, could be 150, 300 foot, depending on mm-hmm. where you're at and what you're doing. Uh, when we're talking about um, transmission, which could be electric lines mm-hmm. or gas lines, hmm. um, we're talking more than... So electric, generally above, above your head and gas Or the gas underneath. lines where okay. you see the pipelines, yep. you know, whether yep. it's above ground or below ground. Yep. Um, but we're in somewhere in the neighborhood of close to 12 million acres nationally that, that they, um, occupy the right of ways of that. So it's not directly what's under the line mm-hmm. or where the pipe lays. It's the footage to the left and right that they have to maintain. 12 to million it. acres of, um, I'm sorry, uh, electric or gas lines. How much, how many road? 2.5 million miles. Hmm. Okay. And then we get into, uh, you know, additional ones and then. Over and above, well, in that two in that twelve million acres, I mm-hmm. need to qualify as some of these electric companies and gas companies also have large land withholdings. Okay. You know, so those acres are incorporated. So those aren't linear tracks, but those are large tracks where management or habitat can be installed or manipulated or enhanced, right? Okay. For for various benefits. Hmm. Um, and then the the big one or the new one that's kind of you know in the last ten years, it's really really taken on and has opened up discussions is solar. Hmm. So currently right now nationwide there's about 500,000 acres that are within solar arrays. Mm-hmm. Now okay. that's not everything inside the fence and under panels. That's literally so they have a footprint. So they not only have where the panels are, but then there's additional acreage along the side because whether they own it, 
lease it, right? They have have certain management they can do. Some of it continues to be in its existing. Some of it has to be managed. So it, it's various. So it's just not everything inside. So it could fence. be a drive into the solar. It could be. It could be a hundred acre, two hundred acre field. Okay. Adjacent to it, because when they lease the land, it's they leased everything, right? Huh. And they still have to maintain or manage it or they're sure. responsible for it, sure. whatever the cover is. So, but by 2030, so within the next less than 10 years, that's going to be pushing 2 million acres hmm. nationwide. Hmm. So when we put this all together, it's roughly around 20 million acres of rights away and energy habit. That potential. either exists today or going to It's going to be developed in, yeah. the, in, say, within the next decade. And that's all, we're not saying that it's prime habitat now, mm-hmm. or not every acre can be, but it all has the potential of being something better, something than, it better than it currently is right now. Now, I want to take that back because, you know, solar, we're not saying that when it gets put in, it'll be better than what it was before. We're trying to manipulate or, or, or influence Maximize. the cover that goes down so that there are the highest benefits for the ones that are going in. Okay. So... Uh, We'll we'll dive in a little bit to um, each of the opportunities, but tell me about when you look at some of these relationships and partnerships, um, what are your goals? You know, so so the obvious goal is, okay, I want to create pheasants and quail, right? That's at the top of the pyramid. What are some of the other things you think about? um, And we've touched on some of this a little bit, but... Walk through your mindset with yep. the goals of these partnerships. Yep. So it, it goes, it, yes, the habitat is important, but it does go before farther than that, essentially, because so when we work with a company, there are lots of barriers, you know, whether because it's industrial, they have different standards, they have, you know, a lot of hoops to jump through. Mm. So a lot of times when we're working with them, we're not only giving them direction on what to do on the land. We're working with them to identify those barriers within the company that prevents them from doing that. You know, hmm. what? why can't you do this? What do you have in place? So sometimes it's working with them on internal policy. Hmm. Sometimes it's helping them work on external policy, right, that affords them the availability. Um, not, not, not regulation. We understand that. We work within it. But, you know, are there, you know, company policies within the contractors and are there internal policies? And then uh, even sometimes there are state or not state, but county township, you know, weed, weed list, mm-hmm. things like that, that mm-hmm. you can't use certain species. So there's a lot of things like that to consider. Well, from us having that experience working on CRP and other programs, we know that. So that's things that we can help provide information to them. So to help flow and even allow them to do the work. Mm-hmm. So it's building that relationship and then with them, it's a knowledge, as the saying goes, it ain't your first rodeo, no, right? No, And you've tackled all yep. these hurdles Previously, that exist. Previously, right, so that we can know what we're looking for to help identify that. Right. And then what that does is that builds trust and builds, you know, it, it builds a relationship. Reputation. Right. And now we're not saying with state agencies, but we've also got entities. So once you build that relationship and, and even say as much as, as friendship, then then what that does as us as an organization, you know, that gives us an ally, a friend, potentially a partner, mm-hmm. right, for bigger projects, because it's not only doing the habitat, who's going to coordinate that work for them, who's going to monitor it, who's going to, you know, look after it, you know, some of these could be turnkey services where they hire someone to do everything. Mm-hmm. Well, Pheasants Forever could be that, you know, that basically that liaison and a lot of other ones. So, not only are these projects on the ground, potential seed sales, but it's also potential partnerships, mm-hmm. right? Dollars coming into the organization to help them perform the work um, or 
a lot of these companies and 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 we're potentially doing work and starting to do work with already some of our sponsors, national sponsors. Mm-hmm. Is, those are then potentially sponsors for Pheasants Forever, mm-hmm. right? Because we've, over time, we establish that. They trust us. We provide things for them. But then also it helps them, and we can help them also tell their story, sure. right? To not only their potential, their their customers and the people they reach, but tell their story to our folks that are a lot of times their customers, you sure. know? But by telling those stories, then everybody that works for them or the signs that are up for everybody driving down the road or, or visiting mm-hmm. their office sees pheasants forever, quail forever. Well, then those are all potential people that are being influenced. and like, wow, look what they're doing. I want to know what they're about. I want this at my place. How do I get it? Mm-hmm. Then those are potential partners and or volunteers or sponsorships. So that's how that footprint of Pheasants Forever just gets spidered more and more. It gets increased in the areas that we currently are and then helps us potentially get into places that we just aren't currently. Sure. Because these things are literally everywhere. Right. Right. So it does, it's, it's habitat very directly. Right. Yep. And, and some of it, yeah, I mean, you, you've talked to pollinators and monarchs a lot and that's, that's clearly an entry point for a yeah, lot absolutely. of these folks, but there's no doubt as I led into the show, absolutely, there's, there's habitat opportunities that do create pheasants and quail. And you think I, you know, I lived in a, a place where, um, there was a, a power line very near um, my house, right? And back, back forest. And that opening, there was always um, grassy habitat and it drew wildlife. And you think about, I think you said 12 million acres of power lines and gas lines. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of pheasant and quail potential habitat. Potential it is. And, and, And what's the unique part about right away habitats in general? Now let's exclude solar, which is usually large blocks mm-hmm. and or land withholdings is this is long and linear mm-hmm. connective habitat, which is one of the biggest things that we have lost over the years is, you know, everybody talks about fence rows, hedgerows, things leaving. Well, what are those long linear corridors that allow wildlife to move from one area to another? That's called ingress and egress. Mm-hmm. So think about you have a, large CRP field Mm -hmm. that's landlocked with whether it's urban development, you know, other, you Mm -hmm. know, agricultural, whatever the case may be. Now that gas line or power line that, that goes across it or near it or adjacent to it then runs. And it also links into another large CRP, you know, half mile away. You've just connected those where before the birds wouldn't go to. Now that's one large habitat because they can travel freely right. between them. It's the whole hub and spoke. It deal. is it, absolutely. So that's what these afford us is that that movement now mm-hmm. of, of of a lot of our populations that have been fragmented or isolated. And while there are still good numbers there, mm-hmm. maybe maybe you're noticing them going down. But now you've got fresh genetics coming in. More birds could move freely. And the one thing we do know about grasslands is it's always a succession, right? It's always evolving. So why at one point in time, you know, your area may have been producing a lot of of broods, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's transitioned and it's a little bit different dynamic. And why it holds lots of birds, you don't see the young ones. Well, now you have a corridor that maybe gives them affordability to areas that they can raise more and you end up getting more birds, you know, that type of stuff, even in addition to potentially then other hens or, or roosters or cockbirds moving in for fresh genetics. Sure. So it really, it's really the whole, you know, like the whole, the whole picture. And then, you know, so, so 
And then the other part of this too is I want to I want to relate it to pheasants forever and quail forever hunters because some of these projects then also provide us funds to help do this that helps us get positions that are doing then doing and working and putting more acres on around you know and in farm built acres or mm-hmm. that are actually huntable acres that we can utilize you know as hunters you sure. know whether it's hunter access whether it's land acquisitions right so it's not always just the existing work we're doing but what that's affording us to do with the people that are doing the work can even increase the increase the numbers of habits increase the habitat and potential opportunities for hunters mm-hmm. and our and our chapter and, and even in all of our uh, volunteers and members in other areas because it, yeah. we added added personnel that can help deliver that mission even in, into other places as well. It, you have to look at it from a holistic point. It of is view. if yeah. you if you target one, it's like. I don't, you know, what does that do for mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not at that spot, but it actually does when you think about it too. And then the other part of that is, you know, we there's a lot of benefits to that habitat, right? Even though, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then we think about people like, well, I'm not in pheasant or quail country. Right. Why do I care? Well, it's, it is, it's the pollinated insects, migratory songbirds. It's the increased infiltration of wa- water and stormwater going down into the aquifer rather than going mm-hmm. into the ditch. The increased nutrient uptake that these plants can provide, this perennial vegetation. So it's really a perennial vegetation, you know, program, mm-hmm. you know, is what we're trying to do. And then just think about the additional carbon capture, you know, that that's coming on the forefront right. and this, you know, what we're, what we're storing with carbon and, and doing that with, um, you know, wherever you stand on global warming, climate, you know, all that good stuff, it's the more of this is better that we put out there. And additionally, what we're telling everybody is everything's not going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. All we're asking for and all we're trying to do is make it better, you know, better than it currently is. You know, sure. we something additional, right? We want to increase a benefit, increase an enhancement and add these additional benefits to as many places as we can, because again, when you look at it as one spot, each individual thing may not amount to one thing by itself. Mm-hmm. But when you drop it in and you look at an area of the country, and then now you have like this uh, CRP field up here, and another one down here, and now you have a roadway or a railway or a transmission line that connects it, and then you have a solar field over here that also connects to that same, and mm-hmm. then you have this this corporation that did it, or this airfield, or this golf course, or this business. Now while now you have a huge large landscape change and in, 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 in habitat that is going to influence all of those collectively right you know a, as it moves forward right otherwise it's a biological desert it could be right. or, or or sink right, you, right. You, you get something in and then nothing can get out well mm. this affords that mobility from from site to site to site that we have just traditionally lost and the funny thing was, is my analogy that I always use, since you use the baseball one, is, you know, hey, you're going on a long road trip, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm from the Midwest. So we're like, hey, you're gonna go to, you're gonna go to Disney, right? You're gonna go to Florida. If there's not McDonald's and gas stations along the way, if you make it at all, you're gonna be in pretty poor shape. Mm. And, and that's what these connective habitats are. They're essentially those those roadways, the food, food the gas, the shelter that you need to get from one point to another point. Mm. So again, is even if they don't, because of size, mm-hmm. right? But we are going to grow populations in, especially some of the margins when they're mm-hmm. large enough and, and in the right place. But even if they don't grow anything on that particular acre, they are providing the benefits to the adjacent acres. Connected. Yes. Connectivity. Yes. Um, and you've alluded to this a couple of times, but I, I want to call it out. This, what you do 
is a really influential, say, east of the Mississippi River. It, it is a way for us to do habitat that does, because obviously land use as you head east of the Mississippi is super intense, whether it's urban sprawl, um, whatever the, the reason, compared yep. to west of the Mississippi where there's bigger blocks. Yep. And what you do with right-of-ways, with roadsides, um, electrical transmissions, pipelines, uh, railways, it is connecting the fragmented areas of habitat that are still on the ground, but it does make them literally exponentially more productive by not making them a sink. Right. Or isolated at that isolated. point. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and it is, it's, it's, there is a definite divide east of the Mississippi and west of the Mississippi, just in sheer land size and population. We, mm-hmm. you know, most people would agree to that. Um, Ohio for a long time led the nation in the number of CRP contracts written. Hmm. You wouldn't think that, right? Mm-hmm. Midwest. But our contracts, you know, they may be a tenth of an acre, mm-hmm. a half acre, one acre, you know, whereas west, you're doing a hundred acre, a quarter section at in a time. In one contract. In one contract. Right. So, it just shows the value of where this is landscape level changes mm-hmm. in regions and part of the country that don't have those large left and they're not going to get them. I don't care what program comes out. We'll get more acres, mm-hmm. but is it going to be landscape changes? We're already fragmented and chopped up and divided because if you, even if you look at the roads, they're doing some of that. Mm-hmm. So make them work for us, mm-hmm. right? They work for us every day by taking this place well, let's grow something on the sides or let's create those same travel lanes for the, for, you know, the birds, the insects, the whatever animal you, you know, you're focusing on. And then the other thing too is, is then it provides those critters places to stay and utilize, not saying that it reduces everything, but you know what I mean? You know, the whole thing is, is you're giving them that area to use, right? And then they're not using yours or ours as much, you know, they've got somewhere to go. Well, Um, the the other thing that I think about as you head east, there's a reason it's so fragmented and um, so much demand and pressure. The soil is incredible as you head east of the Mississippi, right? And it's so, so productive. And as an example, and you could tell me if this is folklore or if you've heard this before, but um, at one time... Uh, the county just south of Lake Erie in Ohio has the highest um, had the highest density of pheasants ever recorded. Have you heard this before? So I'm going to tell you is I've heard multiple counties. Okay. But I do know that that the county in Ohio and I've heard a different one had the largest per or largest recorded population of pheasants per square mile. That is above and above modern day and historical high numbers. You know, anywhere. South Dakota, anywhere. People literally drove to Ohio to hunt pheasants. And, and the reason and I... that was in the 30s and 40s. Okay. In and that the, window. And the reason I bring that up is it demonstrates potential, right? The soil is rich, the, oppor- the moisture, right? Precipitation, the opportunity given good s- situation exists. It, it does, but that... The eastern with the the amount of rainfall and the high soils are the high quality soils actually is also why we have some of our struggles because of the invasive species and the noxious weed pressure that we have, which is all more important why us as Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever as biologists and habitat restoration experts providing the knowledge of the proper way to prepare for the planting. 
the the main the, the establishment protocols, the management after the planting, right? Because it's mm-hmm. a, it's a process. In other parts of the country, you can get away with a lot of things that you can't. In other parts, it's just geographic, right? So, mm. but that's also the benefit of of us with our breadth of biologists across the country. We can provide those resources and that knowledge, regardless of what part of the country, what county, what township you come from, because we have within a, a pretty short proximity biologists in that region or that area that can assist, and also then our partner network Mm -hmm. with biologists and stuff so we can help get the answer and the knowledge out there but the east is that is one of our biggest struggles um the urban sprawl the 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 rural stuff but the noxious weeds right that a lot Mm. of part of the country doesn't have to deal with and a lot of it is rainfall right Mm. i mean it's it's yeah something can be there but it's in small numbers it doesn't you know it doesn't really ever become a problem well over here it's a problem because of the rainfall it takes over. That so, kind of stuff. so is yeah. it fair for this non-biologist me to to extrapolate that when we put habitat, good quality habitat, on the ground east of the Mississippi because of the soil precipitation, that it does have the potential. Even smaller acres, as long as we create connections, it does have the a potential to produce bird numbers in comparatively like in small acres as you head west it's just more challenging um no i mean it absolutely produces you know population because where we have a lot of our populations left in the east our core pockets are in near and adjacent to large tracts of crp you know what i mean Mm. it shows that if you have the habitat there they're there and it'll work Mm -hmm. you know we've just lost some of that so then you know that's why those they'll work on the roadsides, because that's the benefit of a lot of our native and perennial plants, right? They don't, mm. they can even do it in poor soils, which roadsides and right of ways and are. So it doesn't always have to be in the high value crop field. They can still do very well and connect those, but it absolutely works well. It just means that in that part of the country, there is management and we have to address it. But the one thing we haven't talked about at all up to this point was the reason why this sells to these companies, these entities, these business, regardless of it is, is your yard. That's turf grass. That's mm-hmm. a lot of what the standard plantings are for these right aways mm-hmm. What do you do all spring, summer, and fall long? Right. Mow it. You mow it because it's constantly growing. Well, once you put in natives or perennial plantings, mm-hmm. They're managed, right? You're not mowing it every week, every seven days, four days, depending Mm -hmm. on rainfall. It's a cost savings program for Mm -hmm. them. So not only are we creating all this habitat, it is potentially saving them money Mm -hmm. in in the process, right? But we got to educate them on that, that that's why, you know, that's one of the benefits to do it. Because environmental benefits, habitat, you know, all that's great for us if that's our focus. Sure. But bottom line matters, right? You know, especially yep. to corporations, and it does not make sense. They have to make money to keep going. But if we can show them a cost savings in doing it, and then the management style slightly changes to where they can do things larger acres, quicker, faster, you know, even managing mm-hmm. them, um, even if it's instead of not doing anything for five years, they do something every year or every other year, but only on a percentage of the acreage, right? More as a rotation, right. like roadsides, it's easy. You go out west of the county, north of the county, south, you know, each year and sure. kind of rotate. Sure. They can, we can set them up with a management plan that still saves them money. It's cost effective, prevents all the, the nasty stuff, and then provides all these wonderful environmental and wildlife benefits. All right. I'm going to transition us to a bit of a lightning round. Okay. Um, it, what, the way I want to do this is mention, yeah, 
I'll use first example, roadsides. Yes. And I want you to tell me the first like partnership success story. Like, tell me a story that connects to this area okay. that uh, the organization has yep. has done through your experience. So, okay. right out of the gates, let's let's do roadsides. What's the first first thing that comes to mind? Uh, we had a partnership and worked with ODOT in Ohio, Ohio Department of Transportation. Worked with them of re-rolling out their roadside vegetation, their conservation mowing plan. Hmm. And in the first year, it went from, it created 53,000 additional potential acres because of pulling the mowers off. They didn't do it as much in the timing. Mm -hmm. And then now it's about 83 to 87,000 acres annually Hmm. that it's potential habitat in the state that three years ago was not there. Wow. And I bet, you know, another thing we haven't talked about is I bet that's just beautiful. It, it is, but it's also a process, right? Okay. So you pull mowers off and you got to identify, you know, the issues. Cause now, so now it goes to now the habitat is there or the understanding, the acceptance. Now it's enhancing mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and maintaining that in a different look, right? Cause you go from manicured to mm-hmm. flowers, flowers yeah. and different heights and different things. So yeah. And the, and the milkweed response has been tremendous. Um, it's always there, mm-hmm. but if you constantly mow it, you just don't see it. But as soon as you pull mowers off, you get to see what you have. So mm. there's lots of beneficial plants out there already. So now it's not always a restoration. Sometimes it's just an enhancement or managing what you have to remove what you don't want and keep what you do. Gotcha. Railroads. Uh, so railroads, the biggest one is, is like, um, uh, rails and trails. So a lot of those are being converted to bike paths, mm. uh, walking paths. Mm-hmm. And so you have that community involvement. A lot of States are going from, you know, city to city to city. They're trying to connect large tracks. Those are huge information, education, outreach opportunities, because generally, also, a lot of those areas have remnant prairies associated with them. Some of those are our last withholdings in certain parts of the country where we have remnants. We're on those old roadside beds. Mm-hmm. So identifying those, putting them out, but then doing like more pollinator gardens or habitat in those high visibility areas at those trailheads and businesses is educating the people that are using them of what they are, why they're important, and how to use them. Hmm. Uh, power lines. Um, power lines. So we have many of those with many electric uh, uh, um, many, many electric companies. Uh, some of them are cooperative, which are individually owned. I mean, they're the landowner owns the land. So we work with the co-op on those because those can, a lot of those can be farm bill programs on those acres, mm. even though they have the power lines. Mm. Um, and then we've done uh, research projects with a couple large ones to help change the seeding standards, the mixes that are being used in the program, right? That's part of the process. Um, and then partnerships with a couple larger uh, research institutes that a lot of electric companies use so that then we can provide this information to a larger network. Hmm. Solar. Solar. So solar, the biggest one is, is, is working with states on, on solar or like pollinator scorecards or scorecards that, that set up and establish what that vegetation is, but essentially taking large acres of conventional turf grass and putting it into really anything more beneficial, but increasing that environmental and ecological lift Mm. over and above what these turf grasses would be influencing an industry standard is what we're currently in the process of doing. Because a lot, I mean, you mentioned turf grass, turf grass, but a lot of them is just gravel too. Yeah, right? depending on the country. So it's the, the, the two things are, so when we make a recommendation and we're working with companies or, you know, even with Jim and Bethany, government affairs, mm-hmm. it's we're just looking to identify these as needing perennial vegetation 
over and above conventional turf grass and or gravel. Okay. Because anything that we add additionally to it is going to provide a, a level Something of service for above butterflies. It. So we don't want, yeah, we don't want bees. to say it has to be this, it has to be this. It's like let's just have perennial vegetation, and then say, well, what does that look like? And then the conversation is, what do you want it to look like? Sure. Right? We have many options: size, heights, colors, structure. But it's providing deeply rooted plants that are going to be more sustainable because that's what we're doing with mm-hmm. with solar. Right? Does it make sense to have a green energy? And then manage it with fossil fuels and mowing. Mm-hmm. So let's make it a green site. Right. Uh, pipelines. Pipelines is very similar to the transmission and gas. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of large gas companies out there. And the unique thing about – now, pipe they're all the same, but a lot of gas lines go through some unique types of habitat, mm-hmm. right? So not only are we benefiting pheasants and quail with changing those, but, again, it's changing industry standards. Uh, identifying uh, companies to work with, but we're actually training their contractors or working to so that they can install this. And again, it's changing that standard to what that accepted and utilized mix is going in. But, you know, turkeys, whitetail, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of areas, cause a lot of gas lines are through wooded areas. Right, you think about right. where they go. And out west, you know, there is a lot of transmission, but there's a lot of gas out west. So mm-hmm. that re- affords us a unique opportunity to help establish as much habitat as we can on those large tracks that are they're more western as i think about what you do it's sort of the definition of conservation as opposed to preservation right it's it's wise use of the land in harmony with yep. human it's, it's as much as possible in mm-hmm. harmony with human existence maximizing right? the usage right yeah. it doesn't have to be only one thing it can be many things what's um as we close what's the single most um project that you're proud of on a personal level um goodness gracious um i don't know you mean you mean habitat project yeah yeah what what when you uh when you lay down at night before opening day and you think well that created some birds maybe you know what what do you think about that uh that you know, that, that's all the stops along the way from being a Navy diver to, you know, having multiple degree. What, what do you, at this moment in time, hold up as your career achievement that you're most proud of? Um, well, career, I, don't, I don't even know if I have those because it's hard to relate. But um, honestly, I, I just think it's, and this is going to sound like Homer, but I think it's my, my career achievement or what I've been able to find out I'm the most proud of or I think has the most influence is just um, what I've been able to provide and, and what – well, what Pheasants Forever Quilver has allowed me to do to provide and influence as many of the professionals within as we do. Hmm. You know, a lot of the stuff that I've done internally with onboarding and training and passing that knowledge on because one person can only do so much. Sure. But when, when we pass that knowledge on – so. So what I've done in Ohio with, you know, kind of standardizing mm-hmm. a lot of the procedures and the policies that we use, not only within our organization, but the state and federal agencies are following as well, is it makes you proud because everybody's on the same page, meaning we're impacting so many more, you know, so many more acres, sure. you know, as, as we go, you know, and, and whatnot. So, I mean, that, that, cause I mean, we do a lot of projects that we don't ever see again. We don't even know sure. and stuff, but, but knowing that we've put those, those programs and policies in place that every day they're being utilized 
you know you're influencing someone every day or something. Right. So, yeah. Kind of like a coaching tree. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And, and that's what, you know, that's what this program is and, you know, and, and what we're doing and, and, and trying to provide that, you know, knowledge and breadth that we have because unique as the organization is, you know, from people that are on two weeks, people that are on 30 years, mm -hmm. all parts of the country, demographics, where we come from and our backgrounds, right? You know, it's amazing, you know, the, the knowledge that's there and to listen and to get that and, and, and to pass it down. And that's what it's about, right? It's the big thing with, with like us, you know, I'm on the seed team, right? We sell seed in this, but the thing is, is when we design mixes and we're trying to get it out there, we're just trying to get the best result on the land. Mm -hmm. You know, if you buy the seed from us, great. And that's awesome. If you go somewhere else, yeah, I mean, that's fine. But the end result is still is we're impacting habitat. the habitat and what's going on the landscape. And it's always something to be, you know, proud of regardless of our role. So right. I enjoy it. You know, that's the most thing is, you know, your influence and impacting and not changing my life, but you are changing people's lives in a, in a small way, meaning you're giving them something that they right. take pride in, they can enjoy, that they can pass down if it's land, you know, in, in a right way. And then also, you know, the nice thing about rights away is now we have more than, you know, we get millions of drivers that go up and down these roadsides and see these pollinator plots with, you know, OPHI signs and Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever logos on them. Mm. It's the same project I would have done on a CRP field that maybe a half a dozen people would see put it in the right location it's the mm -hmm. same process you know just different area and now we get you know thousands or if not millions of people to see right. that's a cool perspective if folks are listening and maybe they work for a power company maybe they uh, are the landscaper on a corporate campus and they want to do a pollinator yep. project on a you know pick your your corporation yep. um, um any energy company out there that wants to figure out a way to maximize the potential for pheasants, quail, bees, butterflies, whitetails, turkeys, water quality, you name it. How do people that have listened to this podcast get, get in touch with you, Mike, to, to um, explore opportunities? Uh, the easiest way is just to send an email to um, R-O-W-E, Row Rights of Way Energy, R-O-W-E at pheasantsforever.org. R-O-W-E at pheasantsforever.org. Yep. I didn't know that was your email. I would have I, said I, it yeah. M. Redderer. It is. I have that, but the easiest way to remember, because they don't know how to spell my name, R-O-W-E <laughs> at Pheasants Forever, um, and that's literally just set up for you know contact, and that way I can reach out to them, and we'll get them the information, and even if it's just questions or what can I do? And, you know, stuff like that. We, we, we're just, it's a new program where we just did our internal rollout. We're going to be rolling a lot of information out. So chapter members, you know, if they have something going in their backyard, reach out to your regional rep, you know, let your pharmabiologist know they'll have a, a referral card that they can fill out and get to me and we'll get in contact and see what it is. And, you know, a lot, that's how a lot of this is, is word of mouth. And it yeah. is still grassroots, right? Because mm -hmm. I can't be everywhere. We're not everywhere. We rely a lot of, on the public and someone calls up and says, Hey, do you know about this? Or, you know, do you know about that? And then sometimes that's how we get involved with companies. So, I mean, everybody listening can be a, an advocate for this and, and reach out, or if they see something, just, you know, let's work it up, work it up the chain and, and, and see if it's something that we can influence mm -hmm. um, or be a part of. Cool. Awesome job. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've got to go to another meeting with you. Yes. What are we going to talk about? Any idea? I do. <laughs> You're going to keep it a secret. Well, it'll be something that we will uh, be launching at uh, 
National Pheasant Fest this year. Awesome. The next one coming up in, uh, in March. All right. And uh, listeners can stay tuned for that because I'm going to learn about it now and yes. you'll learn about it later. Uh, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I will encourage you to uh, make sure to join our organization. If you're a pheasants, pheasant hunter, quail hunter, upland bird hunter, you like honeybees, you like monarch butterflies, we're doing habitat that benefits it all. And we need you. Join our organization at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. And uh, if you liked what you hear, heard here and you want to connect with Michael, um, R-O-W-E at pheasantsforever.org. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>